and welcome to Talking Bottom. I'm Angela Pearson. I'm Paul Tanter. I'm Matt Brooks. And I'm John Plowman. We are honoured to be joined by an extremely special guest this week. There are few people as influential in British comedy as this man. Since joining the BBC in 1980, he's been instrumental in producing the very best of British sketch comedy, including A Bit of Fry and Laurie, Smith and Jones, French and Saunders, This Morning with Richard Not Judy, Little Britain and The League of Gentlemen. As BBC's Head of Comedy Entertainment throughout the 1990s, he brought shows such as The Vicar of Dibley, Gimme Gimme Gimme, Goodness Gracious Me, Absolutely Fabulous, The Thick of It and The Office to our screens. The list of British comedies that have his talent at the helm is near endless. He's executively produced Extras, Psychoville, 2012, W1A and Inside Number 9. In 2006, he won the Judges Award for Outstanding Contribution to British Television at the Royal Television Society Awards, along with collecting a Golden Globe, numerous BAFTAs, and in 2013, he was awarded an OBE for his services to British comedy. He also happened to produce the third series of Bottom, and many of our listeners will recognise him as the bellboy Richie sends packing without a tip in the episode finger, John Plowman. Welcome and thank you for joining us. It's a privilege uh, okay. to have you here talking bottom with us today. That's all right. I'm <laughs> amazed that anybody still wants to talk bottom, but hey, if you do, I'll do my best. We absolutely do. 30 years on, um, we're, we're still talking bottom. We're, we're all big fans. If we can take you back a bit, John, you began yourself by doing acting and directing during your time at Oxford in the University College Players we wanted to ask you a yes, bit about apparently your... I did. And I met Rick Mayle by via doing that because I assistant directed and then directed for a company called the Oxford and Cambridge Shakespeare Company, mm. which toured, it started probably about 10 years previously by Jonathan Miller and various other people. And, and it toured America uh, with student productions of Shakespeare. It went mm. university to university in America. And uh, there was the year I was producing, I was directing uh, Comedy of Errors. We were looking for people and we decided that because it was going to be about a three month tour, we'd better look beyond the bounds of Oxford and Cambridge. So we went to a thing, I'm not sure that it still exists, it might, called the National Student Drama Festival, where we auditioned people. And the most memorable person we saw there was Rick Mayo, just because of the, you know, the extraordinary energy and, and fun he brought to things. So he was cast almost immediately. Really, so your first impression was, we've got to have this guy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, there's something about when people audition for things, there's something about the energy they bring with them. And if somebody brings more energy than you thought existed, uh, you want them because that's that's kind of going to add to the joy of the nation, as it were. Do you remember what his audition piece was at all? No idea. I think he probably just did a bit from Comedy of Errors, which were what, was what we were casting. Mm. He might have done something else because... Partly because of him, but not just because of him. We also toured a, a sort of review, a kind of late night review that went sometimes uh, after the show. And he particularly enjoyed, as you might imagine, playing various characters in that. And, uh, and, uh, and indeed, he is he broke my arm in a place called Nacogdoches, Texas, 
we were halfway through the tour and I had to come back to do some work in England. And uh, just for fun, they decided they'd have a party at the motel in Nacogdoches where we were staying. And equally for fun, I cut off half, I shaved half my beard. When I say that, what I mean is I shaved, as it were, the right-hand side of my face, not the left-hand side of my face. The reason <laughs> I think this will appear in a minute. Uh, I shaved the left-hand side. Anyway, went down to the party and Rick and various other people thought it would be uh, enormously funny to throw me fully clothed into the swimming pool. I thought it would be less funny. Um, <laughs> I put my arm down to stop myself being thrown in and suddenly my arm was pointing in a direction I didn't know it was possible to point. So suddenly you come into uh, contact with the American Health Service which, I mean, well, which starts by saying, Can, should we call you an ambulance? Yeah, hello, I'm in agony here. Take, call a bloody ambulance. Uh, and Am I right then, in thinking Rick had scarpered? Sorry? Am I right in thinking no, Rick had scarpered? I, no, Rick was around. Um, I mean, we're all staying in the motel, so he couldn't go anywhere unless he was going <laughs> to, you know, sleep outside. So then they ask if you want things like anaesthetic, and apparently my screams could be heard the length and breadth of the hotel and when I got to the hospital they said do you want an anaesthetist to be called yeah of course I want a bloody anyway uh they then said have you had a shaving accident well how you have a shaving accident and break your arm anyway anyway okay <laughs> and so cut to a few years later when I, I broke my leg and Rick came to see me in the hospital <laughs> Because he said, look, I couldn't come and see you when I broke your arm. So I thought I'd come and enjoy you broke your arm. When he broke your arm, was there a point when you were waiting for the ambulance where you were calling out for a razor so you could, so you could no, shave the rest of your beard? Not at all. No, I was in <laughs> such agony. All I was calling out for was an ambulance. I can imagine. <laughs> well, that was a real comedy of errors you had over there then. It was. <laughs> We wanted to ask you a little bit about your journey into TV. You are, you are now revered, as Matt Lucas says, as the godfather producer of British TV comedy. But, uh, but, but you didn't start... I'm sure he comedy. doesn't, but bless <laughs> him, if, oh. if he did. Well, you didn't start in comedy, did you? Could you just uh, tell us a bit no. about, your, about your journey into TV? in comedy. Um, sorry, about my journey. There. How did I get there? When I was at university, I wrote and directed a short play which went to the Edinburgh Festival, as things do, and it got very, very nice reviews, particularly from a man called Harold Hobson at the Sun in the Sunday Times, who was sort of the, you know, much revered critic at the time. And as a result of that, the play came down. Hello. Yep, we're here. Matt Brooks' name came up. Has he I, th got... I, I think I think he might be having some uh, technical difficulties. Is he bored to death? Um, <laughs> I couldn't blame him for. Uh, so wrote this play. Play got taken up uh, by the King's Head Theatre in London, and I wrote to a man who at that time ran the Royal Court Theatre. He offered me a job as assistant to a man called Lindsay Anderson, who was in his own way a genius. So I worked with Lindsay. Not the easiest man ever to walk. He made if. Uh, if you've ever seen, um, it's a very good movie about public school. Uh, it was a slightly surreal movie about public school, and he made a movie called Oh Lucky Man. And anyway, so I worked for Lindsay for a bit, and then I got a job at the Arts Council. And then 
what happened then? Oh, then I got a job at Granada Television working on a kid's show, God help me. So did that for a bit, then worked on a sort of late night arts program and then got lured. No, that's too strong a word. Uh, then was very kindly offered a job producing Russell Harty's chat show at the BBC. Mm-hmm. Produced Russell Harty's chat show, produced uh, Terry Wogan's chat show three times a week, God help us. And then while I'd been at university, I'd worked a tiny bit with Rowan Atkinson and Richard Curtis. So I'm doing Wogan and sort of out of the blue, Richard rang up and said, we've just done this comic relief thing. And you, you, John, were the only person who sent me a note saying, well done for doing seven hours of live television. So can you help me do the next one? So I then produced Comic Relief with Richard, I think twice, Mm. uh, because I think he thought I'd got a good address book. So in a way, that was how I got into comedy. So you had to quit Wogan to do that full time, presumably? it was a there was a, it was a mutually happy arrangement. Terry was fine, I was fine. You know, it wasn't. You know, after you've done something for two and a half years, you think, really, do I have to carry on? <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> was he happy to see you go because of the uh, cost of repairing a piano after you spilled two pina coladas? Oh no, 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 that was. <laughs> oh God, what was that man's name? Um, if you like pina colada and. Something in the rain. And getting, uh, and getting caught in the rain. Getting caught in the rain. Well done. Any idea of the singer? I knew it last night when I was reading the story, but uh, the, his name, his name, <laughs> he's, he's, he's only had one hit, so he's not, his That's name right. isn't ingrained in the public consciousness. Perry was rather fond of the song and played it quite a lot on his Radio 2 show. If you like me, Nicolai. And Rupert Holmes, I think. Rupert Holmes. Done. Yes, Rupert Holmes. And you look. It should be said, not unlike Rupert Holmes. Anyway, so we did that. Then what happened? Uh, oh, well, yes. Uh, the story goes that um, we invite this man, Rupert Holmes, onto the show, onto Wogan. And um, Terry thought it would be a funny idea, you decide, uh, a funny idea to to bring some pina colada onto the stage of the live show that we were doing at the time. Uh, and, and entirely by accident, I swear to God, <laughs> I managed to spill not one, but two glasses of pina colada into a Beckstein ground, which was <laughs> playing at the time. I presume they repaired the piano. That's all I presume. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I, it, it had been, Terry said, wouldn't it be funny if somebody walked on with, and I said, oh yeah, I'll do that, don't worry. Uh, and it would be funny if only I hadn't spilled two glasses of pina colada. <laughs> Anywho, so I did that. Surely that's much funnier. It's much funnier that the, what happened. Of course <laughs> it's funny. That must be one of your very memorable appearances in front of camera. Obviously, as a producer, your career is, is generally behind the camera. But we understand that you, as well as your appearance as the bellboy in Bottom in the Marveloso Splendido Hotelo. Yeah. We read that you were also you'd also do the warm-up for Frenchie Saunders yourself. Well, here's the truth. What happened was working with Don and Jennifer, working on French and Saunders, and most shows that you record in a studio are recorded in front of an audience in order to warm that audience up at the beginning of the evening so that they don't start laughing very quietly and then build to laughing 
at greater length. In order to avoid that, there is somebody who's called a warm-up guy. Now, quite often the warm-up guy is, by profession, a comedian. Not always. Sometimes there's somebody who, you know, helps out. Anyway, we get to the first show that I was producing with Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders. Somebody else has been doing it before. I'd taken it over. And there was a warm-up guy, and I can't remember his name for the life of me. Anyway, he comes on and is frankly awful. And at the end of the evening, Dawn and Jennifer say to me, if he's on next week, we're not. Uh, so I said, well, look, look, you know, rather than employ some, you know, guy who should be at Batley Variety Club or on The Comedians, I'll, I'll do it because, you know, the, the producer knows, hopefully, a bit more than most people about what's going to happen and what's going on and what he wants the audience to do. So I said, look, I'll do it if you'll, if you'll join in when you're available. <laughs> so it would start by me going out and saying good evening and welcome and so on and so on. And then I would be interrupted by an offstage mic, at, which would indicate that either Dawn and Jennifer or Dawn or Jennifer uh, were ready. And so we do a bit of stuff uh, between us. And then I'd introduce them. I would say, ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome the people who it's my job to introduce to you? Anyway, so as a, indeed, I carried on doing Walmart because it was easier than not. As the producer, it's also a canny way to save some money as well. Well, it's not. Yeah, it's a, also a canny way to save nerves. So normally the producer is is pacing backwards and forwards in the gallery upstairs, worrying about why it's not going well or worrying about why it is going well or worrying about why it isn't going faster. And so if you're down on the floor being the warm-up person between each scenes and, and at the beginning, you've got something to do and it's kind of, it soothes the nerves. Mm. <laughs> and you, you actually began your career in theatre, you, you'd actually acted. That's true. I believe you were directed by Mel Smith in a well, performance. Well, Mel and I were kind of mates because oh. we'd been at university together. So, so mm. we knew each other. Anyway, and Mel had directed me in various things at the end of which usually he'd said, I'll never cast you in anything again. Uh, <laughs> was it right that you were in Rosencrantz and Gilderstern I was are in Dead? Rosencrantz and Gilderstern are Dead by Tom Stoppard. Very yeah, good which, which role did you play? I played Polonius, oh. who you'll remember is an elderly courtier. Mm-hmm. And you'll, you may also remember that in Rosencrantz and Gilderstern, as opposed to in Hamlet, Polonius doesn't have many lines. Mm. So I said to Mel, look, I, I don't think you, I've got enough lines, <laughs> you know, which you, is a thing not to say when you're as a compare. So I decided that, A, I would put talcum powder on my hair so I looked old and grey, <laughs> and B, that I would do a thing that I'd heard Graham Garden doing on a show called I'm Sorry, I'll Read That Again, in which John Cleese, amongst others, he did this old man who would, ah, yeah. And so I would, I would, it's cheap, I know, but I would repeat the lines rather than just say, so I would say, ah, my, mm, the, the ambassadors from, uh, ah, hmm. Uh, the ambassadors, uh, the ambassadors from, uh, from, from Norway, my good liege, are, uh, Ah, uh, the ambassadors from 
exactly. So it's a way of stringing it out as a result of which uh, uh, Mel, I'm sure, rightly said, uh, again, uh, which had an irony in the sense that I produced his show with, with Griffiths Jones for uh, some years after. You mentioned there uh, growing up listening to I'm Sorry I'll Read That Again, and I understand you also enjoyed Favourite of Mine, Round the Horn as well. Well, the, the, you know, it was a, it was, it's easy to say it was a golden era, but it was a good era for yeah. radio comedy particularly. Well, I was interested to, for, when I read that, why, uh, were you ever tempted to try and pursue a career in radio rather than television? The th- the way, uh, no, is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No. no, I mean, not for no real reason other than I was working in, you know, in the BBC television bit, yeah, yeah, uh, not in the BBC radio bit, and so it sort of didn't come up. What TV comedy did you grow up enjoying? Good question. What television? Do? Well, Monty Python is the the obvious one. Forty Towers is the obvious one. There was a wonderful programme. Who was talking about this the other day? Somebody was talking about this the other day. There was a wonderful TV show called Where Was Spring? Starred John Fortune, who's an actor and very good comic actor. John Fortune and Eleanor Bron. And it, it's a kind of review show that I remember principally probably for one joke, which was a married couple and a husband turns to wife and said, and says, your mother is a witch. To which the reply comes, yes, but you have to admit, she is head of her coven. Um, <laughs> I offer it. So I liked that as well. Sorry. Yeah. Was, uh, often I'm sure said- we're going to talk about bottom at some point. Oh, no, Carry no. We'll, uh, oh, we'll, we'll get on. Well, yeah, we'll lead um, into that. <laughs> so, um, so on uh, the subject of the wonderfully absurd play uh, that you're in, Rosencrantz and Gunstern are dead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that play is often compares to Wednesday Fogado, which uh, fans of this podcast, yeah, fans of this podcast have heard me drone on about that a few times, and my strong desire to get a time machine and go back and manage to see Rick and Abe perform it is there's no recording that exists as far as we're aware. Did you get a chance to see them perform? Yeah, uh, I think so. He's and it was it as memorable as it sounds like it was. He said no. I mean, the thing that was true for them doing it, as for other, you know, there have been a couple of few, the old production with with comedians, if you like. And the thing that strikes you usually is, are they too young? Are they too young to play these old men that Beckett's written? To which the answer is maybe, (laughs) I suppose. You know, it... In the end, Beckett isn't... Beckett is funny writer, but not necessarily a comedy writer. Yeah. Do I know the difference between the two? No, I've no idea, but that's what strikes me. <laughs> and obviously, you'd worked with Rick uh, previously, but do you recall the first time you saw Rick and Aid together on stage or in a TV show? Was it pre-Young Ones? Was it when they were at the com- comedy store or the comedy oh, strip? I think... When did I first see them together? I remember seeing Rick... We were doing a thing. At, I was working at Granada in Manchester at the time. And Rick was one of those people who, you know, I'd, I I suppose I'd seen at the comic strip, which was probably the answer, the answer to your question is uh, seeing them as the Dangerous Brothers at, at the comic strip. And But before that, I'd seen Rick at 
he came up to Granada to play a character who in the end became, I suppose, Kevin Turvey. Uh, but, as, but as far as Rick said, uh, told me at the time, a character he'd in fact created on the train, on the way up to Manchester, since he hadn't got material. And it was to do a pilot for a show that would, never came anywhere, but he was good at it. That's fantastic. In a way, you were there for the inception of Kevin Turvey. Yeah, yes, accidentally. <laughs> um, so moving on to Bottom, you produ- obviously you produced the, the third series of Bottom. Um, yes. <laughs> do you recall how you came to be involved? Yes. Uh, what I was producing French and Saunders, and one of Rick and Aid, who wasn't Rick, was married to one of French and Saunders. I was producing, Bob Spears was directing, and Bob Spears had previously worked with them on Five Go Mad and Dorset for the first night of Channel 4. So We'd taken over from our producer then, and to cut a long story short, I think what happened was Aid presumably went home and said, what's Plowman like and what's Bob Spears? Well, they knew what Bob Spears was like. So Bob was taken on to direct. Maybe we just got a hole in our schedules. Maybe that was it. <laughs> Maybe we were just available with nothing to do. And as I say, Aid had, I think, knew me because of Francis Orders. So Rick and Aid requested you, as far as you're aware, or you were... Yeah, I think that's a very grand way of looking at it. I think what they did was think, hooray, we could work with Bob Spears if we can get him, if he's available at the right time. And I came with Bob Spears. Right, I see. Because Ed Bai was no longer available. I think that's right. Okay. And what were your thoughts when you first read the scripts for Series 3? I mean, stories involving... Ferris wheels and riots in Hammersmith must have seemed quite well, challenging. You know, I suppose what I thought was how closely written they were, mm. if that makes sense. In other words, you sometimes, well, for example, when we started, when Bob and I started working with Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders, I remember going down to the office they'd hired in Hammersmith uh, to meet them. I, I hadn't met them before. And we had probably about three weeks before we were filming. And there were maybe four or five things with question marks on yellow post-it notes on the wall. That was what the script amounted to. So in a way, getting these scripts for Bottom was rather a joy because you thought, oh, hooray, they've written a script. (laughs) Now, as far as, and it's a complete script. Now, as far as I remember, they were kind of, Working scripts, you know what I mean? In other words, you get the script. I, I don't know why I think this, but I think Rick, as it were, was, as it were, the, the, the inspiration. For, no, that's not fair. Rick was the guy who had extraordinary ideas from time to time about where things might go. Mm. And Aid was the guy who wrote them down and was more sensible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah. It, so you you would get a script which we'd work on for a week in a rehearsal room and and it would change, it would develop, it would they would play around with it as it were. You know, wouldn't it be funny if we did this instead of what's in the script? And sometimes it would. And, and was there anything uh, Rick or Aid wanted that you had to say no to for budget reasons or? Not that I remember. One of, the thing I remember, particularly, you know, I was looking at the at what the episodes were. I mean, the, 
I remember the the Ferris wheel and the brilliance, in a way, of the designer who came up with the top half, no, not even half, but the top bit of the Ferris wheel, and that sat in the studio. Mm. Not the whole Ferris wheel, mm. uh, but the, the top half. So we filmed that bit and then added to it in wide shots, as it were. Mm. <laughs> There were nothing you had to say no to then because it was no, not that I remember. Mm. I mean, I may be having a happy, you know, I may be being, I may be misremembering, but but as far as I remember, there wasn't anything where we said we can't do that. Yeah, there may have been things where we said we can't do it quite like that. And if we're going to set fire to things, you have to do it on a pre record, you know, you can't do it in in front of a live audience you can't set fire to things was there, was, there, was there anything uh, that you was there anything you found particularly challenging uh from studio well, filming funnily enough the ferris wheel yeah. because you know it's got to break as far as i remember they've got to cling on to things things there are there are fire effects and we always did the show we were lucky in the both bottom and french and saunders we got i don't i can't remember why some bizarre contractual thing we got two days in the studio each week and the joy of that is you can do all the effects all the difficult stuff all the physically difficult stuff on one day and you can do the audience show feeding those effects in if you see what i mean on the second day which means you apart from anything else play less fast and loose with the lives of the performers (laughs) Do you have a favourite episode from the ones yeah. that you made? Uh, well, it, it, it's, the, it's the Ferris wheel episode. It's the Ferris wheel because, yeah. apart from as you know, the hand of God <laughs> at the end is yeah. is a joyous invention. Again, well done to the designer for doing it, and well done to the designer for doing it, who also went on to design the Spider-Man. Grenville uh, was it Grenville Horner. Yeah, yes, yeah, he's a very good guy. They went to a, a fun fair to scout out Ferris wheels and see what they look like, and yeah. and, the, and the backdrop was an actual representation of Hammersmith as well. Apparently, at night. Now I live quite near Hammersmith, and I, joyously I have to say the the seat is still there with Rick's um his bench, you know, the, the sort of plaque on it. But I can't see where you would put a fun fair. <laughs> yeah, yes, I think you'd Without have to clear some space. Maybe knocking the church down. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's a one. It's a very good episode. Yeah, the characters they played are sort of the evolved versions of characters that they'd started as the Dangerous Brothers, and then and yeah. played versions of in the Young Ones yeah. and in Filthy Rich and Cat Flap. They're a sort of unique comic creation in British comedy. What do you make of the characters well, that Rick and it's played? They're so big. Hmm. You know, most a lot of comic creations are liked because they're so real. You know, because we go, yeah, I know that guy. I've seen that. You know, if you watch, well, Faulty Towers, let's say, you watch Faulty Towers, you think, yeah, I've met guys who get angry at the short, smallest thing. I met guys who get as annoyed as that. I mean, sure, they may not work in hotels, but but Rick and Aid, they're kind of cartoon characters that nevertheless have some reality. You can, you know, as I say, I can't imagine where they put the fun fair in Hammersmith, and I can't imagine quite where the riot was. But that's fine. <laughs> that you know, characters who decide to go on holiday to Doncaster, there's something so big and and 
certainly it's a sort of clowning, certainly it's a sort of cartoon world, and in a way it's almost as much of a cartoon world for the other characters, you know, for the characters, you know, who are called Skullcrutcher and things like that. It's quite unique in that regard, isn't it? (laughs) We've talked on the podcast before about how you couldn't really get anything else like it unless you were making an animation. You know, the amount of physicality and slapstick and and violence in it. That was the talent they had. Mm. It wasn't, you know, they were writing for themselves and to themselves, if you see what I mean. Mm. They could play that. Lots of other people can't. And, you know, it's joyous that that we have it. So, John, how did you come to be uh, cast as the bellboy in Finger? I suspect, as ever, we were on the, probably not running over budget, but on the point of it. And so Mm. I thought, well, sorry, I'll, I'll do it. And I and I've always quite liked to, you know, I played I played a man who notionally owned a vineyard in the French episode of Ab Fab. I've done the odd journalist, the odd people in this. It, it's just it's selfish. <laughs> bit of bit of fun, yeah, to get yeah, involved. Exactly. And yes, I was taking work away from other bona fide equity <laughs> members. I apologize. I was a member of equity at one point. But I think I, I think it's a testament to your skills as a producer that you were shaving uh, you were shaving the budget where you could in that regard. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah. Although, as I say, I don't know how, and it's maybe a tribute to Grandpa Horner that that I don't remember it as one of those shows that went wildly over budget where we had to go on our hands and knees mm. to anybody well, to give us money. The series that you produce, the third series, actually feels a lot bigger in terms of the universe that they're in. There's street sets and there was uh, them driving through the off-license window in a but car. As far as I remember, and I think it's a, this is important, it's all in the studio, isn't it? You can't put those characters in the real world mm. surrounded by any ordinary people. You know, you, it wouldn't work. It, it has to be in the studio. It has to be in the same world that they're otherwise in if you see what I mean yeah yeah you being one of the few members of the BBC quite high uh, one of the the cream of the crop as it were did you hear rumblings about like bottom before like when series one and two were happening what was the gossip around like what did you think of it before you heard of it and stuff what were people saying about bottom while it was well I think you know it did pretty well as far as I remember there was an audience for it there was an audience for this slapstick, for this extraordinary physical comedy. And there wasn't any there weren't any other shows like it. So as far as I remember, the word was was good. And and I suppose I remember thinking, well done, Rick Mail. <laughs> I don't remember that there were there was any, you know, we'd had the young ones, so so we knew the kind of the world of, of Vivian and the world of Rick. So it wasn't a surprise, really. That okay. It wasn't that something came along that was so unlike something they'd done before. It was just a joy to have it. But did you feel, in the way that we feel, that it was their best work? We we often celebrate Bottom as, you know, it was the moment where they'd they'd really, really found the, the heart of what they wanted to achieve with those characters. Well, it, yes, it was certainly what they wanted to do. It's hard to say anything is better or best. Mm. Isn't it? I mean, you well, know, as fans, we we go over and over <laughs> our kind yeah. of favourites and everything. So Fine, very different. But yeah, I, we we feel bottoms their best work. But of course, I think it's really good. Incredible. I mean, yeah. yes, filthy rich and cat flap. 
Yeah. It's better than that, probably. Yeah. You watched that at the time. What did you think of Filthy? Well, I I think I knew too much, really. Uh, you know, that the, there is a, ca a character who is head of entertainment, who is Jim Moyer. Oh. And, and the fact that Vic Reeves is also Jim Moyer just adds to the confusion. That does add confusion in it, uh, when you read uh, people in interviews and things. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I like both Jim Moyers. Do you do you recall what the uh, reaction at the time uh, to series three was? Both the for, you know from audiences and from inside the BBC. I think good. I mean, as I say, it was like nothing else, and it did pretty well in terms of ratings and things. So there was never a question of oh, I don't know, do we want another one? Mm. There were, if if they would write it, we'd do it. Was there talk of a fourth series immediately? Then I can't remember. I think there was talk. But then, for whatever reason, nothing really went, you know, it didn't happen. As far as I remember, yeah, we talked about it. But uh, scripts didn't arrive, as it were. And do I remember that they went on tour together immediately after the third series, or r relatively after the, relatively soon after the third series? Yeah, Bottom Life 2 uh, is basically just after uh, yeah. the series came out. Well, I, I have a memory of... The series three played, and then the last episode that played as as new in quotes was "Bombs Out" from the last one from series two, which didn't air because of the murder on uh, in that area. So that went out then as as well, yes. had been released. I remember, I'd forgotten yeah. that. Yeah. And the announcer at the end said, "And there will be a new series of Bottom next year." I remember that very clearly. Like, oh, great! And that let may have been. Yes, okay. That may have been a wish by a controller. <laughs> Do you think Rick and Aid paid them to say it then? <laughs> no, I suspect Rick and Aid said, what? <laughs> Brilliant, because on the British Comedy Guide website, you're listed as the executive producer in 2013 of Hooligans Island, which is then, it says, cancelled next to it, um, which, of course, was the rumoured planned fourth series. Can you that's tell us right. a bit about it? Yes, now you say that, that, I remember maybe that what happened was they talked about another series of bottom and then they talked about hooligans island and would it work and how could we make it and yes good yeah so that was much more recent obviously that was 2013 that that was planned. but do, do you remember the discussions you had with them about the hooligans island idea that was going to be a new yeah venture? and i remember thinking i don't know how the hell we make this <laughs> i Did think did you see a script or anything? Or... No, I don't no. think there was a script. I think there were talk. There was talk about, as it were, what the idea was, which was it's Rick and Aid on the desert island. So, if you hadn't seen it, but if you see the stage shows, have you seen Hooligans Island, the third stage no, show they did? No, I, no. Was it good? Yeah, fantastic. Oh, good. <laughs> but they had the idea to move that to TV. Then, yes, it never happened. What about the film version? Did you ever catch that Guesthouse Paradise? Yes, I did see that. Yes. What did you think? It was fine. I will say all three of us here are bottom fans, but we Good. will, you know, we'll also say it's not the best film in the world. It has has a very good opening thirty minutes of slapstick, and then it sort of loses steam. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. But it's still a good achievement. And of course, Rick, but in particular, was being made lots of other offers at the time. You know, there were lots yeah. of things that he was being asked to do, some of which he yeah. did, some of which he didn't. So think, it wasn't that they were, as it were, sitting around just waiting for the BBC yeah. to say, yeah, we'll do that. 
Do you think when people talk about bottom that the quality of the writing actually gets forgotten and overlooked because there's too much focus on what people see as just the cartoon comedy violence and so forth? There's too much emphasis on hitting each other with frying pan. Uh, or was that Vic and Bob? Both. <laughs> yes, I yeah, I mean, it is well written, I think. Um, but maybe I would say that, wouldn't I? But but I think it is well written. It it, it packs a lot into half an hour. Mm, yeah. So My main memory is of Rick on on the audience days saying to Bob and me, if you've got any uh, after we'd done the rehearsing that day, as it were, saying if you've got any notes for me, give them to Aid because I'll be throwing up in the dressing room. <laughs> and he was. I mean, that I, I don't know whether he actually threw up, but he he was this creature that got very nervous. Yeah. And then the second he was sort of through the studio doors and in front of an audience, he was a different person. It was was Aid a bit more um, calm when yeah, it came to yeah. leading up. To, yeah. Aid was the kind of sensible half. On the face of things, Bottom has a, has a quite a traditional sort of British sitcom setup. It's two people. Yeah. In it's a house with a sofa. It's all in a studio. And, and yeah. it sort of conforms to that thing of it's two people trapped together who kind of can't stand each other. That's and it's right. almost like yep. a married relationship. But it's obviously it merges great writing with what people would call slapstick and cartoon violence. Do you think it's, it holds a unique place in comedy? Well, it holds a unique place only in the sense that it hasn't led to a lot of other things called Son of Bottom. If you right. Know. You know, I mean, yeah, there's Rick and Bob. But but there aren't a lot of things in that area of comedy. So mm. you've got to say, hooray, well done. They they kind of invented something. Mm. Like it's kind of lightning in a bottle. You can't really yeah. replicate it. Yeah. Been any, why do you think that's the case? Do you think that there's a reason why it just can't be done? I don't think it's that it can't be done. I think that those people haven't come along. You know, it it's not it's not that anybody said we don't want to do that anymore. It's that nobody has come along who can do it. Do you think that's why its popularity is endured and we're still talking yeah, about probably, it 30 yeah, years later? Yeah, there aren't a lot of, you know, if you want to watch two men stuck in a Ferris wheel above Hammersmith, uh, <laughs> with, you know, thinking that they're going to die and waiting for the hand of God to arrive, then nobody else is going to do it. <laughs> Why do you think that is, though? Do you think there's, you know, it's just because they were so utterly unique as a pairing, or do you think like some people coming up now aren't necessarily being as brave or doing that kind of slapstick has gone out of fashion? I think it, I think there's an aggression there. Mm. There's maybe an, an anger and an aggression that isn't mm. necessarily part of what comedy does is to say to the audience, "Please like me," uh, and maybe Bottom never really said that. Yeah, yeah. Hey, look, this is what we. Well, Richie might even say that exact line at some point. Please like yeah. me. I think Richie yeah. might actually say that line yes. or something. Very yes, but say. he wouldn't mean it in the way that many a comedian like. You know, you can't. Yeah. It, it's hard to imagine the Crankies doing something like Bottom. <laughs> oh, that I would love to see. Yeah. <laughs> Jeanette stuck on a Ferris wheel. <laughs> getting, getting burned to death. It's many years now since we sadly lost Rick. Do you miss working with Rick and Aid? Do you sort of look back? On yeah, that? I mean, they're, you know, the fact that they were such a particular talent that's not there anymore is very sad. And, and you know, do I miss working with them? Well, well, no, yes, I do. I do. But I think only in the 
sense that they were offering something of their own. Yeah. Do you still see aid through your contact with, with uh, Jennifer? Not as often as I'd like, but rarely, you know, yeah. Yeah. We haven't, we haven't decided not to talk to each other ever again. <laughs> of course. And you've worked with some fantastic double acts in British comedy, obviously Rick and Aid and French and Saunders, Fry and Laurie, Smith and Jones and Gervais and Merchant, to, you know, oh, double God, acts wise. Yes. You, what is it about the double act, do you think, that produces comedy gold and sometimes bronze? Well, it's it's bouncing, is it? There's somebody to... If you have an idea, I know, what would it be like if... If, you bounce, if you're able to bounce that off somebody else, it gets better, and then they bounce back. You know, it, it sort of... It always works. It, it gives you a sounding board. Mm. And it, it also means that you have to create sort of two characters to do it. Mm-hmm. There's an immediate chemistry and yeah. dynamism I also remember, on. I also remember Griff, when, I, when we were doing Friends and Saunders, I mean, you've mentioned quite a number of people I work with, and I always thought there was a big difference between the male duo and the female duo. I, and I always remember Griff saying after I'd, I'd done a series of Friends and Saunders, I think, and then had gone on to, and him saying, why are they allowed to be silly? They're just being silly. And I think, <laughs> I think forgive the impersonation. And there's something in that, that, you know, that it's sort of like girls are allowed to be silly and boys have to be sensible. Mm. And usually good comedy acts break both those rules. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'd 100% agree. But yeah, you're right. There is a there is a difference there, isn't there? Um, yes. Perceived difference. Um, muck about. Yeah. Dawn and Griff were allowed to muck about, whereas Griff always wanted it to be written absolutely <laughs> to the last word. And you worked with John Stewart on the short-lived Where's Elvis this week, where he came over to present it, expecting a team of writers. No, no, American... he didn't come over. We went uh, over there. Oh, okay. And he... did, I, I still remember pacing... Broadway, probably, or somewhere like Broadway, in the middle of the night over there, thinking it's only going to be a couple of hours before I can ring London and see if we can find somebody to film this. <laughs> John Stewart was very good and very, you know, extraordinary that he didn't walk off when, when he heard that we hadn't got a huge number of writers. Has that American system ever appealed to you, the writer's room? Yeah, I know. I mean, I've I've sort of vaguely worked on it a bit on a couple of things in America, and and it works. It's it's just a different. It's doing a different thing. There's a a group of eight people. You show them the setup line. Anybody got a better punchline? That's yeah. how it works. Mm-hmm. And so, I'll, if you're not careful, I think after a while it becomes very. It's very demanding, but it's also very. It creates something with relative anonymity, you know, without any real soul, maybe. Although I know. I've well, produced friends. Of shows that you wish you had produced, I was reading in, I'll give it a plug here. In, oh, bless in, you. If I can get book. it to work. Uh, you know, I was wandering around this house today thinking, where is there a copy of that book? I can't find one. So thank God you've got one. I, re- I recommend John's book. How to, how I to recommend produce, it as well. How to available at all good bookshops. <laughs> In, uh, in the book, you list shows that you wish that you had made, including 
Larry Sanders Show, oh. Dirty Rock, Faulty Towers, Blackadder, <laughs> Till Death is Dupart, and Steptoe and Son. I just wondered, since the book has come out, are there any that you would add to that list? Any that I would... Sorry, um, you've caught me unawares. I like Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I like 30 Rock, anything with Tina Fey. Yeah, so there are, yeah. there's two. Yeah, no, yeah. Those, those, those are very good choices. Arrested Development and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia oh, too. Was, yes, Arrested Development, I, not quite as much. It's good. Who am I to say it's not? But yeah, okay, we'll add Arrested Development. <laughs> it, for Always Sunny in Philadelphia, I haven't really watched that much. Of all the many things that you have made, is there yeah. anything that you either made or commissioned that, that you thought it should have got a bigger audience than it did? Because I, I, I always thought that Sean Locke's 15 Stories High yes, sort of went under the radar. Have, well, there was a show close to my heart called Beautiful People, hmm. written by Jonathan Harvey, based on where, and it's close to my heart because we did the thing that you're supposed to do with, you know, television and film, which was we, I read a book, I liked it, we bought the rights to the book. We dramatized it. Jonathan Harvey dramatized it. And then we made it as tough. You know, it, it had the right pedigree, as it were. And and I'm sad that we only did two series of this, but not too late to bring it back. Mm. It had Oscar-winning actress Olivia Coleman in it and Miratal and various other people. Good Fantastic. pedigree. Yeah. So on the subject of things you wished you'd worked on that you <laughs> haven't done, is there anything you worked on which you wish you hadn't worked on that you would like to expunge from your yeah, CV? But, but the laws of libel being what they are, um, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. There are things, yeah, there are things where you think if only a bit more work had been put in, they might have been better. What about, do you have a regret of turning down a pre-Ali G, Sasha Brown Cohen? No. We hear you are... Uh, he no, to you no regrets about that whatsoever. Uh, he came into my room as far as uh, into my office as far as I remember and said, "Give me a television series." I didn't know who he was. Nobody else knew who he was. Me not giving him a television series was the right thing to do at that point. <laughs> he then he th I know yeah he then we were doing a late night thing. I can't remember what it was called. There was a late night kind of sketch event thing that was to give young producers a go and young talent to go and he did a thing for that he did a thing for that which consisted as far as I remember of him standing outside a sort of upper class event I can't remember which one it was and trying to get girls to say the word cunt now <laughs> there are those I'm sure who would fall about at that uh, I wasn't necessarily one of them, and it didn't seem to me that it led to a series. So, no, I have no regrets. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't see stretching that much further than one minute. Of exactly. Yeah, exactly. a series it's out there. Yeah, sure. It's a very good joke, yeah. but it's not a series. <laughs> but though you get you follow you got a feeling in the room then, because you've spoken, of course, about when Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant arrived in your office pitching. Pitching the yeah. office, yeah. and you went with your gut that day, you know, in, in a similar right. way. And I was uh, right. Mm, yeah. <laughs> is that what you'd say you do have to do? As it obviously is a commissioner. I, I, it's the only thing you've got. You know, you, you can't you can't start a focus group of, of I don't know secretaries and people outside. Although it should be said that we did get the series of absolutely fabulous 
because we'd made a pilot. At the pilot, I remember the then head of comedy, a very nice guy called Robin Nash. Robin saying to me, I've never found women being drunk very funny. And I thought, well, there's that. That's the series gone then. Uh, <laughs> but we made the pilot and it went upstairs to Jim Moyer's office and his PA uh, was watching it over lunchtime with a group of girls and they were laughing and enjoying themselves a lot when Jim came in, as a result of which I think we got the series automatically because of Jim's PA. And do you think there is a bit of a, a split then there? Obviously, you know, that women, you, you've mentioned, obviously, French and were allowed to be silly, as it were. But do yeah. you think, you know, there was a feeling that, you know, women couldn't be as grotesque or kind of be be viewed in that way that that changed with the likes of Ab Fab? Well, I suppose, but I don't remember. I don't think there was a sort of, it wasn't as written down as that. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't, nobody was wandering around saying, men can do this, women can do that. I don't, you know, I have no memory of that at all. And so it wasn't, nobody was saying women can't do it. You know, you yeah. just take what you get. Really. Yeah. But just in society kind of attitudes have perhaps moved on. Yes. Yes. And with any luck, comedy is a bit helpful on that mm. front. Yeah, absolutely. 100% agree. And you've been quite vocal about the imbalance between the investment in drama and the budgets that are made available to comedy. That's true. Um, why do you think comedy does get such short shrift when it is obviously because such a popular I, genre? I, because I think the people who make things like news and drama think we're serious, we're the proper people. And and comedy is just a thing. Over, it's just a little, you know, mm. quite anybody can do that. And the fact is, anybody can't do it. Mm. And I think there's somehow there's a feeling that if you want, if you're going to have a career in films, I say, and films are always regarded as the holy grail. If you're going to have a career in films, you're more likely to get it by making, by you know, starting on EastEnders than you are by starting on Shooting Stars. Although it should be said, I'm I say Shooting Stars deliberately because the director, one of the directors of Succession a rather good show on Amazon, I think, or possibly Netflix. The director of that is Mark Mylott, who used to produce Shooting Stars, who used to direct Shooting Stars for me. So, And it's written by Jesse Armstrong. Anyway, hooray, yes. Of, of Peep Show, yeah. Exactly. Um, you've had so much success that it must be impossible to... Say that. <laughs> it must be impossible to choose one, but I will ask anyway, is there one show that you're most proud of? Well, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. Now that I know that Ricky is has become worth something around $180 million, you'd have to say, well, The Office has been jolly successful, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, Do you see a cut of but, the, Amer but, of the Amer actually, American? I'd say Ab Fab is my favourite because I had yeah. a great time making it. Yeah. It led to a movie. We had, you know, it it was fun. And it came yeah. out of fun. So I think Abfab. It's a great show to uh, to have at the, the crowning jewel in your CV. Yeah. There. yeah. Um, you, you mentioned Ricky Gervais getting very rich from The Office. Did you ever see a, a cut of the American uh, residuals coming through? I didn't even see a cut of the British residuals. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Is there anything on TV at the moment that excites you, comedy-wise? The Olympics has been quite funny. Um, <laughs> it's funny doing a show in front of no audience. Sorry, 
Uh, that was a flip, quick answer. Uh, sorry, what was it? Ask the question again. Uh, is, is there anything on TV at the moment that, that particularly excites you? I'm thinking mainly comedy, but, but is there anything drama that you're quite enjoying at the moment? I quite enjoy The Repair Shop. I've, I've not seen that. Is that a reality TV show? In its own world, it is at eight o'clock on a Wednesday night on BBC One. It's a group of people who repair things. Oh, okay. That sounds quite soothing. It is quite soothing. That's why I like it. Okay, fantastic. Very, very honourable in this climate change crisis-driven world we live in. Exactly. Yeah. Make do it. Make do and yeah. end. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, have you got a question? Yeah. I'm. Um. I'm all out. Good. <laughs> right. Is there... Do you feel that? Okay. Yeah. No, I do. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So, do you feel that slapstick humour has a place in today's oh, yes. comedy society, whatever? Yeah. Because there is, as it were, an audience for the erudite and an audience for the less erudite. And there's an audience for the hitting each other with frying pans and an audience for reading Greek literature. Just how it is. Yeah, I, I think there is. Why wouldn't there be? Do you think there's a reason why, why physical humour is less prevalent now than it was in the early 20th century? Well, because if you're going to go on to uh, Live at the Apollo... You need props if you're going to do lots of hitting, and it's easier to stand there with a mic. Yeah, I think it is literally that simple. A reason is it's it's harder to do physical comedy on stage, think, so therefore I they're think, not learning the craft. Think, I think it's a matter of taste. I mean, I think it look it must look easier to just stand up and tell, do observational humour to an audience. It's harder to do a thing that requires the thought of how does it work when we do this. You know, sometimes we we had a special effects guy on bottom and the way it worked was Rick and Aid would write something and then he would work out how to do it. Or no, that's not fair. He would work how to do uh, work out how to do it safely, which is slightly different. I I mean I think it if somebody tomorrow night comes onto television, or it doesn't have, even have to be television, but if somebody starts doing something physically that's based on physical humour and based on slapstick, the audience will enjoy it because there isn't anybody else doing it much at the moment. Do you think that uh, both the advent of uh, and the ease of CGI and the uh, increase of health and safety rules and regulations makes the kind of things that Rick and Aid did in the studio much less likely to fly these days. I can't imagine them being allowed to have, you know, set things on fire in the studio or have beds drop through ceilings and that kind of thing. I often get asked to, to get asked the question, would you be able to do that sort of show, whatever that sort of show is? Mm. Would you be able to do that now? Surely people would say you can't. I think you can do it if you want to do it. You mm. can do it if, the, if it's right. You know, yep. if it's funny, if it works, you can do it. I think and, the tastes have changed around it. Sorry? I think tastes have changed then amongst the audiences. Or... Yeah, but taste changes by the things you're offered. Does that make sense? No. Mm. But hey, let's go with it anyway. I get what it means. Um, you know, if you're offered slapstick and you're not offered anything else, you must long for somebody to come on and quietly tell you a joke. But if you're if you're surrounded by people telling you jokes and there's a certain amount of what we might call big comedy going on, then suddenly you'll you'll be pleased that it's there. And you've spoken previously about the need to write something real 
to make comedy work nowadays. Do you think this is why class plays such a crucial role in British comedy? Well, class has always played a crucial role in British comedy. You know, there is Lear, there is the fool. Mm. You know, the, it, it's always been there. I think it's 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 a reflection of society. Mm. And that do you think that's what makes British comedy in particular stand stand out the the class system? It's a contribution, isn't it? I mean, the fact that we've got the class system in order, to, we've got something to laugh at. Mm. If, it's, if you see what I mean, mm. and we we think, hooray, I can laugh not just at Boris Johnson, but also at the class system which he is part of. Yeah, it's important yeah. for satire. 100%. Yeah, and indeed, you know, one of the shows I most enjoyed doing was W1A because we got to, as it were, laugh at the BBC, and nobody said you can't. <laughs> yeah, even the BBC were standing themselves up there, which is yeah. fantastic. Love W1A. <laughs> what are you working on at the moment? Is I'm there... doing a podcast uh, <laughs> with Peter Pincham that can be heard on BBC Radio 4 and on BBC Radio 4 Extra. It's been running on Wednesday mornings at 11.30. It's called What's So Funny About? Um, in which we talk to various people about why their shows were hits, if they yeah. were. So we've mm -hmm. done we've done Dawn French and Richard Curtis on The Bigger of Dibley. We've done Jennifer on our fab. Mm -hmm. We've done Mira Sale and Anna Gupta on Goodness Gracious Me. We've done John Cleese on Forty Towers. We've done Have I Got News For You. We've done that. Fantastic. That's a fantastic selection. And also a film which has just been had nice reviews at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York and will be part of the London Film Festival called All My Friends Hate Me. We'll look out for that. I can emphasize the title and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> dare we ask how Inside Number Nine Series Seven is coming and whether there'll be a Series Eight? Certainly at one point there was talk about aiming, trying to get to Series Nine. Because oh. series nine of Inside Number Nine would be a rather yeah. good idea, wouldn't it? Mm, that would be fantastic. Who knows whether we'll get there? Whether I we, hope so. Recent Steve will, will want to get there. Series eight is written. Excellent. Oh, excellent. Are we, to put, are we allowed to put that? Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. No, Excuse wait a minute. Wait a minute. Not so, what am I talking about? Where have we got to? We've done series, series six, six has been on. Series seven. seven. I apologize. Uh, okay. Series okay. seven is on. <laughs> no, they haven't written even. Oh. It's like the night they'll be saying, "What? Don't be telling them that." Yeah. yeah. But um, series four coming soon. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. All right. Well, well, we look forward to that. But for now, John Plamer, thank you very much for joining thank us. Thank you. It's, thank it's, you. Almost been a joy talking to you. <laughs> Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it, John. All right. It's been a Bye. pleasure. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.